the tent is getting larger and the tent doesn't have a door that's closed to anyone. The more we are all aligned in this process called stakeholder capitalism, the greater the benefits to all of us. I don't want to exclude anyone. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Cooperatively Speaking, an E&I podcast. I'm your host, David Manns. I've got my good buddy with me, Titus Martin. He's the Executive Director, Supplier Diversity at E&I. How are you, Titus? Wonderful. David, how are you? I'm great. We're kicking off a new series. I'd love to hear more about what new series we're going to be talking about. Absolutely, David. Well, today, we're really excited. We're going to be talking about our Supplier Diversity Leadership Series. And we have a very special guest today, Mr. Reginald Williams, who is the CEO of Procurement Resources. Reggie has over 40 years of supply diversity experience, and he's actually the individual that coined the phrase supply diversity. So looking forward to today's discussion. He's got a wealth of information and knowledge to share with us. So without further ado, Mr. Williams, how are you today, sir? You got to stop calling me that, Titus. It's Reggie, and I'm really delighted to be here. Uh, this ENI podcast is really timely, uh, and the reason it's timely is there is much there's a lot of consternation over programs that focus on creating diversity and driving inclusion. And most of it is politically based. But I'm going to clarify that, a lot of that, for your listeners, particularly those who are in the academic community, because it is, an, it is a vital part of learning. Great, great. Well, let's just jump right into it today, Reggie. Tell us a little bit about your background, how long you've been in supply diversity, and share with our listening audience a little bit more about uh, what you've done in this space. Well, I'm with a company called Procurement Resources. I'd like to tell everyone that I was a founder, but I was just one of the early people starting with the company. This, we're celebrating our 40th year. We are consultants to corporate management. Most of our clients represent Fortune 500, in fact, Many of them are Fortune 100. We run about 10 to 12 corporate client accounts every year. And our focus is on how to position supplier diversity, creating a pool of vendors and contractors that expands the relationship with the customers that you sell to. In the case of the academic community, this means how do we establish a relationship with the communities where we operate and the students that are coming through our uh, facilities. And there's no better way to do that than to be business partners with them. Exactly. Totally agree. Let's talk a little bit about your history in this space. Well, this started under the Republicans. It was Richard Nixon who was a proponent of small business development and minority enterprise. He was the one that gave the go-ahead for the first House committee to be formed and the White House Conference on Small Business in the 70s, which I attended. <laughs> so this was, uh, that tells you how old I am. So this really has no basis in political leaning. What it does have a basis in is creating an environment in which we all become stakeholder capitalists. Now, what does that mean? 
bringing everyone to the table so that everyone shares in the process. They share in the wins and they share in the losses. But without ownership of that process, you're on the outside. So we want to create an environment in which our suppliers and contractors, minority-owned firms, women-owned firms, veteran-owned firms, the disabled who own companies, Native Americans, Asian Americans, Hispanic Americans, Black Americans, all being provided competitive access to partner with us. And the LGBTQ community. We want to exclude no one from the process of stakeholder capitalism. Reggie, have you had an opportunity in any of your past roles to kind of see where some of these practices have actually been put in place? Absolutely. Uh, let me give you an example. Let me give you an academic institution. As you well know, I'm consultant to corporate management, and that also means consultant to academic leadership. My biggest client was the University of California system-wide, all 12 campuses. And as you well know, the University of California system-wide has a supplier diversity manager on each campus, working to find ways they can partner with diverse suppliers for the goods and services that they need. One of the best examples I could give you regarding this business of inclusion would be this. The University of California established a survey to determine the extent to which they were doing business with graduates of their university. And when they did that survey and sent it out to see whether some of the vendors represented their own students, they found that they had never really courted that group. They never sought to find those small businesses that were also graduates of the university. So they were at a level of 1.2%. In five years, they went to 21%. That's amazing. Inclusion of women minority that were students of their universe. I'm really happy about that, and I had nothing to do with yeah, it. That is impressive. This happened because they decided. I had never, not even thought of that. Mm -hmm. They decided that they needed to find a way to empower their students through partnership. That's an amazing best practice to think about. That what what are we doing here? We're educating our students. But then what happens after that? And I think that's awesome, Reggie, that uh, it, we've talked about this before in another podcast. If it's important, you measure it, right? So why not measure the success of the students that when they get out into the real world, what that local impact looks like? And I hope that becomes a best practice school-wide all across the country. No question about it. There are other schools that follow the lead. I must say the University of California system-wide by far is one of the leaders in supplier diversity and has been for over 20 years, even before this was in vogue. But there are other schools that are equally important to note. One of them would be Emory University in Atlanta. Another would be Duke University, which started a program in supplier diversity many, many years ago. 
the most significant change I've seen in supplier diversity happened in Indiana. I'm trying to think the name of the school. They hired a, a vice president of supplier diversity. And this vice president, he didn't have responsibility for workforce diversity or anything to do with the academic process. He had His job was to identify, they were expanding the campus and they were spending close to a billion dollars in new buildings. And his job was to make sure that this, this, this construction process, this phase of business was inclusive of women contractors and minority contractors. And they ended up spending 32% of their spend with women and minorities. This school is, I think, sets the benchmark. Mm -hmm. I want to turn our attention a little bit. Let's talk about some trends in the industry. Tell us about how you see future trends affecting supply diversity, particularly in the education sector. Well, there are a couple of trends that are pretty important. One of the trends in supplier diversity in the educational sector, now remember now, let's separate supplier diversity from workforce diversity. There's workforce diversity, which requires that you have a representation of women and minorities and disabled people in everything you do, including the hires of the staffing, etc., and that you be inclusive in your admissions process. There is also diversity in the materials that are used and the content of the curriculum. Supplier diversity has nothing to do with that. Supplier diversity is strictly focused on the extent to which there are business partnerships. The money spent by the university is inclusive. What do I mean by that? Organizations and academic institutions must, if they are committed to their own pupils, ensure competitive access. Competitive access. They must ensure that they have included women, minorities, veterans, LGBTQ, disabled, and in everything they do as they let contracts for goods and services. In this case, it's driven by two more, even more important considerations. One, regulatory. The vast majority of universities do some kind of work as contractors, research, etc., mm -hmm. with the federal government. The federal government requires, well, we want you to do business with small business, women and minority business. And the reason we want you to do business with them, they say to the university, is because the revenues you are enjoying were generated by small businesses. This allows us to infuse capital in the most, one of the most important economic components of our economic system, small business development. So they require these universities to do business with women and minorities and small businesses. And the reason this is important is that sets the business model that they carry through for their commercial side of the house as well. Let me give you another example. Duke, $2.5 billion, not million. This is a fact. $2.5 billion 
in government contracts and grants each year. That, that's significant. Very much. That's a driver. Very much, yeah. A significant driver. But Duke has created a culture, and the culture is self-driven. Regulatory requirements are important, mm -hmm. but Duke isn't doing it because of regulatory requirements. Mm -hmm. So would it be safe to say that those universities that have embraced supply diversity and really taken it to the next level are really going beyond the regulatory requirements Correct. And because they see their growth in the revenue and also the uh, the ancillary benefits that the university could receive. Couldn't have said it better. You couldn't have said it better, Titus. That's exactly right. Case in point, again, is that example I gave you with the University of California system-wide, mm -hmm. their own students. Very interesting. So what we're gathering is that we're seeing a lot more of in the education space, either K-12, higher ed, there's a greater emphasis on supply diversity than has ever been. That could be due to the shifting demographics. Uh, it could be a plethora of things. But I want to get your opinion in terms of what you've seen. I know you've been in this space for 40 plus years. So share with us some of the trends that you've seen that have really been drivers. Delighted. This, this will open their ears. This is big. The fastest growing demographic group of small business in the United States, the fastest growing, are businesses owned by women. Let me say it again. The fastest growing economic demographic group in business are firms owned by women. That's significant. That's significant. There is an organization called WeBank, W-B-E-N-C. You can Google it. Women's Business Enterprise National Council. They are the, the largest, most powerful organization of women in business in the United States. And they command relationships with more than half of the Fortune 100. Why? The largest demographic group that over indexes, meaning they spend more than they are in the, in the population, are consumers that are female. Women drive sales of everything, whether it's cars or whether it's sundry materials. So this means supplier diversity is a business imperative. What are you saying, Reggie? We will only grow as fast as our market grows. If the fastest growing component of our market are women and we have not established relationships to infuse capital into that component of our marketplace, it affects our own growth. So it's a no brainer. This is not a social issue or a social challenge. It is a business imperative. It affects us all. Agreed. Agreed. I'd also seen a statistic that said women drive over 60% of, um, of buying decisions in most homes. Or over 60%. 62. 62? 62%. Well, in my household, yes. my household, I think it's closer to 80. 80, 80 plus. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'm a firm, I'm a firm believer of that statistic. So I, I, I see it and I live it every day. The predominant decision maker in my house for everything is my wife for four, over 40 years. Mm -hmm. 
the reality is this is good business. It is. When we embrace women as strategic partners, they have insights into things that we don't have and they are much more effective when it comes to being a driver of change. Let me give you an example. One of my clients is General Motors. And General Motors, this may predate some of your listeners, when they first came out with SUVs, they were, it was kind of a high step to get into an SUV. If you were a woman with a skirt on, it was kind of difficult. General Motors, in fact, it was Cadillac, and you may remember this, Titus, came up with a device that lowered the vehicle, brought it close, so that if a woman was, were going out and she were driving the, the SUV and she had a skirt on, she could easily get into the vehicle. You accommodate the needs of your constituents and your stakeholders and your customers. Women drive change in ways that we could not. It reminds me of a documentary that I heard uh, years ago about the early beginnings of the automobile where Ford had the same car, the same color. There was no accessories. There was no nothing. Yes. And then they realized they were missing out on the demographic. People not only weren't purchasing new vehicles or but it was women that were saying, hey, I want something of a different color. I want something that has chrome in it or something else. And all of a sudden, amazing accessories and the entirety of the automobile changed forever as a result of looking at the entirety of who their audience is instead of just one single demographic and how we all benefit as a result of that. Because I, yes. I love my different color cars and all the chrome and accessories and all that stuff. Yeah. And we'd be stuck with the same old you know, same color car with the same accessories if, if they hadn't opened up and looked at their entire audience. But with these trends, with looking at these differences and looking at the expectations of your stakeholder base, which are all different, and accommodating them means that's, that's not a challenge. That's an opportunity. That's a way in which we create a, a stronger bond. So everything these universities do, particularly in the communities in which they're located, that allows them to establish relationships with their own stakeholders is a positive. This process called supplier diversity does not require that you compromise standards of performance. It does not require that you accept mediocrity because of someone's color or their race. It only requires that you ensure competitive access for the opportunities created so that your pool of suppliers, this, this is the definition. We want our pool of contractors and suppliers to look just like our constituents. We want our pool of suppliers and contractors to look just like our students. There's no better way to establish this than business partnership. Very well said. Renji, what are some best practices uh, that our listening audience should be aware of that can probably help strengthen some of their supply diversity initiatives? I mean, you've been doing it for a while and would love to hear your, your feedback on some things. I'm going to give you some best practices that are in practice that Reggie Williams had nothing to do with creating, but I can attest they work. One is called fail-safe, F-A-I-L-S-A-F-E, F 
fail-safe. This practice was created by members of the BDR, Billion Dollar Roundtable. Your listeners can look it up. Billion Dollar Roundtable, an August group of America's largest corporations aligned to create business diversity. They meet monthly, they establish policies and procedures, and they have now set the standard, the benchmark for what works in supplier diversity. And this particular practice called fail-safe is very simple. No contract shall be consummated without consideration of qualified minority women and veterans. Let me say it again. No contract shall be let without considering qualified minorities, women, and veterans. It means we're not committing to simply contracting with a vendor because he's a certain color or he or she is a certain gender, but we are committing to ensuring competitive access to everyone qualified to do the work. So that is a basic best practice that your listeners, if they're at a university or an academic setting, can easily apply with no reason for compromise. Would that be considered a part of the sourcing process? Yes, it is. And as a matter of fact, once you do that, once you've ensured that access, that competitive access, you then have a chance, you have an opportunity to drive inclusion. But that vendor or that contractor will have to win that contract or earn that contract based on the specifications you've set. Of course. They still have, people have to compete. But if if they're not in the pool, their being able to compete would be irrelevant. So by doing so, you're actually giving more opportunities to those individuals who may not have been considered previously. Absent this process, Titus, you do not have supplier diversity. Any of your listeners that say they have a supplier diversity program that does not include outreach that ensures the consideration of qualified diverse suppliers does not have a supplier diversity program. I think that's an excellent place to pause our conversation with Reggie Williams and Titus Martin about what a true supplier diversity program is and isn't. You're definitely going to want to tune in for part two of this conversation. It's available now where Reggie recounts how he coined the term supplier diversity decades ago, giving his valuable insights on the past with tools and best practices for success with your supplier diversity program. That episode is available now, so please join us. And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode of Cooperatively Speaking.